The Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. I'll invite you to turn with me there. It was exactly a month ago, I went and checked, February 6th, when we finished our study of John chapter 4, and we saw there Jesus confront a man about the nature of true faith. He was confronting him with the notion of trusting him in ways that went beyond what his eyes were able to see, trusting him by taking him at his word. And one of the questions that we asked that morning was the question of the extent to which we clearly understand and have in our minds what God has promised to us. What has he promised you, and what has he not promised you? And we noticed that we really cannot hope to take God at his word in that sort of a way if we don't even know the promises that he is asking us to trust him in. If you were here, maybe you remember us thinking about that. If, if that sort of a concern rang true to you then, if it rings true to you this morning, we have good news before us this morning. I'd suggest to you that uh, while we could never answer the question, what has God promised you? You can never answer that in a satisfying way by looking at a single portion of Scripture, a single passage. I'd suggest, though, that our text this morning, verses 25 to 29, is exactly the sort of place that we could go for a broad and rich answer to the question, what have we been promised by our Lord in his word? What we're going to hear this morning from the Lord Jesus Christ is a promise to his people of life, eternal life. But again, that doesn't answer the question so specifically. How can I wrap my arms around such a statement, of, uh, uh, the promise of the giving of eternal life? How do I wrap my arms around that in a way that is meaningful and helpful? So what Jesus is going to do and what we're going to do in in And looking at the claims that he makes here, is he's going to explain the gift of eternal life this morning. He will declare that the promise of eternal life, that he comes to bring his people, is the promise of true spiritual life now, experienced now, that is accompanied by a coming perfect physical life in the future to be enjoyed for eternity. A physical life, in fact, that will correspond to the spiritual renewal that we're experiencing now. There will be for us in the future a new body that matches the new us. These are the things that we're going to be confronted with, comforted with, and be challenged to trust God in as we hear his word this morning. We'll read simply verses 25 to 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our Lord continues in this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, 
and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Everyone that you ever meet and have ever met is going to exist forever. C.S. Lewis spoke to that reality very famously a long time ago. He put it very simply when he said, you have never met a mere mortal. That's a powerful way to put it. You've never met a mere mortal. What we're going to find in what we've just read are promises to that effect about the future. There will come a day when all will be called out of the tomb. Now, if that's true, the one question we have to wrestle with this morning is, what sense does this promise make for the Lord to give to his people, the promise to his people of life? If we're all going to exist forever, what is the promise that he's giving to his children here, to his people. This morning we hear Jesus make a promise of life, he says, to those who hear his voice, not simply to those whose, whose eardrums are rattled by his voice, but as we've seen in this study, to those who are given ears to hear, to those who hear his voice and hear his voice in an effectual way. To those, he makes in fact here two related promises of life, that's what we'll see this morning, with Words of justification in between them, justifying the claims that he's making. So we can divide what he says here into three parts this morning, and this is how we'll walk through our text. We see in verse 25, first, the claim of the gift of present spiritual life. In verses 26 and 27, he gives the justification for himself making such a claim. And then thirdly, in verses 28 and 29... We could say it in a short way. We could say we hear the claim of future physical life. I'm going to add on to that some, some other words uh, that I think are important. What we hear there is the claim of corresponding, coming, perfect physical life. A coming physical life that corresponds with the spiritual life that he talks about in verse 25. We'll see that when we come to verses 28 and 29. But first, let's look at verse 25, the claim of present spiritual life. And in fact, I think it's helpful to notice how verse 24 sets us up for this. Look at uh, what he said in verse 24. He said there, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In saying that, he raises dual concepts that we'll see this morning, the concept of life-giving and the concept of judgment-making. He has eternal life, he said, and he does not come into judgment, but instead has passed from death to life. But one of the questions that, that will lead us well into verse 25 is to ask, uh, what is true um, in what way is it true, what he said at the end of that verse, in verse 24? In what way has that person who hears his word 
In what way is it true to say that he has passed from death to life? And this is what we hear in verse 25. Look at what he says there. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We need to notice the difference between how verse 25 there is worded and how verse 28 is worded a little bit further down. Do you notice that verse 25, the promise there starts with this, an hour is coming and now is. But verse 28 doesn't say that. Verse 28 says an hour is coming when. So verse 25 is describing a reality that is being experienced in the very time of Jesus' ministry itself. This is something that he is bringing. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What is happening as men and women hear the voice of the Son as Jesus travels the region and speaks, speaks words of life? What's happening as he does this and as people hear his voice is that death itself, death is being pushed back. And life, true life, is coming in. Herman Ritterboss puts it this way. He says, those who hear this voice will not just live in the future, therefore, but now already they will pass out of death into life, delivered from the power of death by the voice that calls them to rise. Jesus is giving true spiritual life to those who had been dead before they heard his voice. He's speaking of his people, of those whom the Father has given to the Son. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, he's speaking of you. And it's an encouraging thing to hear, but it it also produces its own natural question for us, if we're thinking about this. When we're talking about life, but we're not talking about physical life, And what exactly do we mean? What exactly are we talking about then? I think that's the most significant question of the entire morning. What is the nature of this spiritual life that he is holding out to those who would hear his voice? We should understand from the outset that it's a promise that is repeatedly given in the New Testament. Interestingly, we should be getting used to this by now, uh, being given to us by means of the Apostle John. He writes in 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He's speaking of a current reality and experience of life. He'll quote Jesus as saying in John 11, verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. We have the same idea given to us here in verse 25. What are we being promised by our Lord? This is a true life that we didn't possess before we came to faith. And a life that the lost do not have even now. That's worth pausing on for a second, isn't it? It's one of those sorts of realities that... It's just very significant, it's very weighty to think about, 
The difference in the here and now that the Holy Spirit is having on men and women. You may be hearing that right now, and perhaps you're one who knows, and even your own conscience reflects to you honestly, that Jesus Christ is not your Lord. You have not trusted him for life. It's odd to consider, isn't it? That you're described here as being dead in a way that the believers in this room are alive. It it very much frames, I think, uh, or should frame our sense of and our feeling of God's sending of his son into this world. It should affect how we think about Christ and how you think about Christ. To know that he came in order to give you life. That's why he has come. It may be just a striking of a thought for the believers in this room. We could put it this way. There is a way in which you are presently alive in a way that is not true about much of the world around you. Doesn't that shape things like our our sympathy, our robust prayer life as we understand that we have zero power to bring the dead to life. Only the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ has that power. Doesn't it lead us to a desire for more patience and for more, um, for more faithfulness in how we represent the Lord to those around us who do not know him? We rightly cry out to God who alone can bring the dead to life. Now, as I said, the natural question is, what is this life? If he's speaking of a present reality now, what is this? And I would suggest, in response, from God's word, three answers that we receive in particular. There are more that we could uh, see, but three for this morning. Three things that God's word tells us that this present spiritual life consists in. And wouldn't you know it, John gives us all of these. He's not the only one who does, but he doesn't neglect any of these. We are given, when Christ gives us life, spiritual life in the here and now, we are given a capacity, a knowledge, and a status. First, we're given a capacity that we didn't have before. He's spoken of this already in John 3, 3, when when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. He said this, unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a missing ability there, a missing capacity, the the ability to see. There's a blindness. Paul wrote about that in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He wrote there, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We can see who God is. We can come to know him by seeing him displayed in the face of his son. But unbelievers don't have the ability. They are blind. What's the solution for this blindness? Paul. Verse 6, just further down, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
This is why we cry out for those who do not know the Lord. What we're crying out is that he might open their eyes. He might make them to see. It's what led William Tyndale to shout out before he was strangled and burned to death. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And John 3.3 spells out the sequence there. In order to see the kingdom of God, one must be what? One must be born again. That sounds suspiciously to me like a metaphor for giving life, which is what Jesus is claiming to do here for his people. So the life that we're presently given by Christ involves the gift of a certain capacity. That capacity does not lead to the gift of life. The gift of life is needed first if we are going to exercise that capacity. Now that's a capacity to see. As he gives us that ability, what we see instructs us. It teaches us. And so in in giving us life, as Christ is claiming to give his people, he's giving more than just a capacity. He's secondly giving what we could call a knowledge. Specifically, true knowledge of God. We go to John 17.3 to see this, given most directly. Jesus, speaking of the Father and the Son, he says this, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Listen to verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you and that they know me. As Christ comes to give us life, he gives us, by virtue of who he is, he gives us knowledge of God, true knowledge of God that we did not have before. The receipt of that true knowledge is what's behind the conversion that God's word speaks of. When God gives life to a rebel, to a sinner, what happens as they are confronted with the sight of this one? We are utterly undone, aren't we? We're we're undone by the beauty, the worth, the perfections. We're undone by what we inevitably then see about ourselves. As I see that, I now see this in a completely different way. I had all kinds of excuses and reasons why I wasn't so... That goes away when I see that, it leads me to mourn for my rebellion against one so great and so worthy as he. It leads me to humble myself. It leads me to repentance, a desire to turn and to turn toward him. It exposes my emptiness and it leads me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The youth in here should be remembering this is exactly the story that is told by the Beatitudes in the early verses of Matthew 5. This is what the Lord does as he brings someone into his kingdom. He is giving them something to see, and as they see and as they realize, this is, what, this is all that could happen to one of us who sees a sight like this and who receives the knowledge like this. This possession of true knowledge produces all of that. I see I'm undone. I repent. 
I come begging empty-handed for life, asking for forgiveness. And what, what comes in this giving of life? Well, thirdly, what comes is a new status before him. You could put it in several ways, but we'll say this morning, the status is forgiveness. We need to only look at verse 24 of this morning's passage to see life spoken of in those ways. Look again at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Give me some more here. Okay. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you hear the dichotomy that's set up there? I mean, there is a life-death dichotomy. That's true, but only because of what death actually means. The real dichotomy is between, it has to do with judgment. He does not come into judgment, but instead, he's passed from death to life. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but it's also helpful to see this from verses 28 and 29. Look there for just a moment. Jesus is going to say, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What are the two options set up there? They are the options of life or judgment. When we hear, it's helpful, I think, because when we hear life, we can default to just a sense of continued existence. What's life? Well, I continue to exist, so that's life. That's not at all right here, is it? It's not the point at all. Because continued existence is not what separates Christ's people out from everyone else. Both groups are called out of their tombs, and they obey that call. They can't help but obey that call. One of those groups is brought out of their tombs and brought to life, and the other is brought out of their tombs and brought to judgment. So again, if the question is, what is this life that we're talking about, the life that Christ gives to his people now, one of the pieces we have to speak about is this new status, because this is everything about the context of judgment or passing out of judgment. We have to see that we're talking about true forgiveness here. When Jesus says he has come to bring us life, he speaks of bringing us capacity for true sight, which grants true knowledge of God and leads to a renewed status in his sight. It is all inescapably God-centered, isn't it? It's all centered around a devotion to God, a knowledge of God, an enjoyment of God's favor, as opposed to his wrath. Now, we're going to come back to all of that at the end this morning, because there's much to consider about this present promise. But for now, move on with me to verse 26. We see in verses 26 and 27 a couple of statements given that justify his making a claim like he's making. The reason we see in verse 26, that the reason that hearing the voice of the Son of God will bring life is this. He says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, what we've already seen about life this morning is true in God as well. 
God has life in himself that does speak of continued existence, but it does not only speak of continued existence. It speaks of the reality of divine devotion, divine knowledge, divine favor. God is entirely devoted to God. In fact, that's what we mean when we speak of God as holy. We're affirming his complete devotion to himself. God has complete knowledge of himself. Nothing about him has ever surprised him. Perfect divine pleasure and favor is experienced in the Godhead. The Father has life in himself. And we ought to be careful how we even speak of that. This life is not a thing that he has. It is of his very essence. All the way back to the uh, third and fourth centuries, in fact, in the early fifth century, Augustine wrote this about this topic. Isn't it amazing to think that the church has been thinking about these things all this time? Listen to what Augustine wrote. God does not, as it were, borrow life, nor, as it were, become a partaker of life, of a life which, which is not what he himself is. But he hath life in himself, so that the very life is to him his very self. This is only true of God. And the Jews have long spoken of God in those terms because this is how he is described, how he reveals himself in the Old Testament. And yet, verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This is incredible. This is completely inescapable, isn't it? Is Jesus staking a claim here in this confrontation? What you have long understood to a certain degree about God, about the Father who is in heaven, I'm telling you, this is true of the Son. And he adds to this, the judgment concept as well in verse 27. He says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We spent an entire Sunday morning on the Bible's concept of the son of man, that title, that category, and so we won't do that here this morning. But if you remember what we said then, the fact that this eternal son is also the son of man fits very well with the Father's will to grant all judgment to him. Because the Son of Man, as we saw, is, a, is, is the heavenly figure in Daniel 7, to whom is given what? By God. We read there, authority, glory, and sovereign power. He is the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. It fits exactly with this reality about the divine Son. And what I'd like us to do is to put together what Jesus is saying here in 25, 26, and 27. All of this, as he stands there responding to these leaders, it is a giant bombshell about the Son. He is saying that life and judgment reside in the Son such that the dead must hear his voice to live, in verse 25, and that life in himself, divine principle, belongs to the Son, in verse 26, and that all judgment is given to the Son, in verse 27. None of that would be controversial or even surprising to hear spoken about God. 
What Jesus is doing is he is claiming the category of a son of whom these things are true. He is forcing a picture about God that must be reckoned with. And you understand, perhaps, now why at the claims he made about the Sabbath, the response was opposition and persecution. But at the claims he made about his person, the response was death plans, murder plots. Everything is different and changed in the way he is representing himself and his relationship to the Father. Now, he's not done yet making these claims. The last one, before we look at all of it together, it comes in verses 28 and 29. And this is what we're calling the claim of corresponding, coming, perfect physical life. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our Lord says, don't let this surprise you that the voice of God's Son is as powerful as this because it is that same voice that will call forth the dead from their graves. And when that voice calls forth the dead, they will obey it. Someone put it this way. The voice of the Son is powerful enough to generate spiritual life now. It will be powerful enough to call forth the dead then. And see, we get a little glimpse here, if we know what's coming, into why John 11 is going to be a great climax and turning point in Jesus' ministry. Because these leaders will have been repeatedly scandalized by these kinds of claims that Jesus is making. This kind of authority, this kind of power, power over life. But when he goes and raises the dead right in front of them in chapter 11, they will not bend their knee. They will conspire to put him to death. Well, once that has happened, once they have seen that and responded in that way, there is nothing left to show them. And there's a fundamental shift in the way that Jesus' ministry happens from that point to the end of the book. But what's different here in verses 28 and 29 is that this is a promise of things yet to come. An hour is coming when this will take place. And it may be, if you're like me, it may be that there's something here that surprises you a bit or that, that it's been helpful to me to, to reconfigure some of how I spend my time thinking when I think about the future and I think about the Lord's return. What I mean is this. I can tend to think hopefully about a future resurrection and even maybe to end it there, to, keep, to remain that, that general. It's not as if there's something wrong with that. Um, that is a thing in and of itself that believers hope for. It's a day of great anticipation. But what verse 29 points out is that the day of resurrection isn't a day automatically to look forward to, is it? A resurrection itself, a coming out of the tombs, everyone is going to experience. And that in itself, I mean, even in verse 29, that in itself isn't even enough to be worthy of the word life. 
at that point. Because some will experience that and not be brought to a resurrection of life. It's not even worthy of the word. Some will come out to the resurrection of life and others will come out to the resurrection of judgment. And I hope that we can see how this future promise that Jesus makes to his people is a corresponding kind of promise to the spiritual life that he's already spoken of. This is a corresponding life, a life in the physical realm that corresponds to the spiritual life we've already been hearing about. You might think of it this way. I am alive physically now. That's true. I am alive now. But even this is not the same as the resurrection to life that the Lord is promising his people here. Jesus is promising us something in the physical realm that we do not now experience. He calls it coming into the resurrection of life. And that's more than the mere physical life that we have now. The best way I've, the way that it's stuck with me that I've heard it in the past is that this is the promise of a new body that matches the new me. The redeemed, reborn me. We have been, if we are in Christ, we have been sanctified, we've been forgiven, We've been renewed. We are indwelt with the Spirit of God. We bear fruit of the Spirit. And the promise is of a body that is fitting to that. Paul will call a resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, he'll call it a spiritual body. And he will not at all mean a non-physical body. That's not what he means. He means a body that is completely subject to the will of the Holy Spirit and responsive to the Spirit's Guidance. Does that describe your body well today? I'd venture to say it does not. They enter the resurrection of life, and thus their bodies will be fit for that life. And by contrast, unbelievers enter the resurrection of judgment, and their bodies will be fit for that judgment, to their everlasting horror. Now, it should be said that Verse 29 creates no suggestion whatsoever of a works-based salvation. John's entire gospel makes that clear. Look again at verse 29. They will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We ought not hear that and think of of a one-to-one, a cause-effect relationship purely in and of itself. Uh, There have been two interpretations of his statement there that I I think both are helpful. I don't even know, I don't know that they disagree with one another, but they're getting at this in two different ways. So I want to mention both of them. One point that's often drawn out of verse 29, very rightly, is simply to say that Jesus told us everything we need to know about how good works relate to our salvation when he simply said, a tree is known by its fruit. Salvation does indeed change God's people, doesn't it? It makes new trees out of us, not perfect trees. This one's going to have to die before it gives way to a perfect one. But a different tree, one that can bear good fruit. Calvin took this way of understanding this verse. Uh, He said this, Christ is not here treating of the cause of salvation, but only distinguishing the elect from the reprobate by their own mark. You can tell a tree by its fruit. 
And that's true, and I think that even in and of itself is helpful to us. What it misses, though, or what it leaves out, is it doesn't do justice to the picture that John is giving us in his gospel and the ways that he is speaking of these realities. John's gospel has a particular idea in mind of doing good. And one man, Colin Cruz, put it this way. I thought he said this well. He said, care must be taken not to import ideas about doing good and evil from elsewhere in the New Testament. In this gospel, what doing good means is believing in the one God sent into the world, while the ultimate evil is to reject this one and refuse to believe in him. When Jesus is asked in the middle of John chapter 6, a very direct question, what shall we do to be doing the works of God? Do you remember how he answered? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is what John is giving to us as he, as he recounts to us the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that this is what verse 29 says to us. Just as Christ gives spiritual life here and now to those who believe him, who take him at his word, who put their trust in him, isn't that what we've seen over several chapters now? The day will come for those who trust in him that he will raise them to a physical existence of resurrection life. This is the promise that he's holding out. So do you see the two promises, but the way that they absolutely correspond to one another? We began this morning by asking the question, do I know what promises God has made me in his word? Well, just consider the promises that we have found here in these five verses. For his people, because we have heard his voice by his grace due to no merit of our own, because we have heard his voice, we have been made alive with a life that we are presently experiencing now. It's a life with a new capacity. We can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that capacity has brought with it true knowledge of who God is in Christ. You remember John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is exactly what Jesus has done as he comes and brings life to us. And my friends, that affects everything. It affects everything about how we see everything. I just became aware within the last probably couple of years, I think, was the first time I saw videos of this. Have you ever seen videos of people who are colorblind and who put on these new, they're called enchroma glasses? I couldn't tell you, but you, you put them on and you can actually see in color where you can't, I don't know, but I've, seen, I've watched the videos of this. They sell these. They've been approved. It must be a real thing. I can hardly believe that it's possible. Have you ever seen the, what, what, they, what they've done a lot is they've just recorded the footage of people putting these on for the first time.
I, I don't know how anybody could watch that um, with a straight face or with, without emotion. You can tell it got me, and I almost never cry. <laughs> what has he given to us? I love that you know me enough to laugh at that. That's good. <laughs> what has he given to us when he revealed himself to us like this? Think of what we live in by nature, apart from the gracious work of God. Think of what life is like. We go through it. There's the innate, inescapable testimony of creation around us. So we look out at night as we see the, the incredible workings of life, of nature, there's the testimony in all of that, that all of this must have come from somewhere. It came from someone with intelligence. It must have come from someone with brilliance and good taste and beauty. Someone who must be very big and very powerful and who must then be able to see me right now. You add to that all of my awareness of my own failures and wrongs my innate sense. Of guilt. And the guilty conscience that accompanies it. That assures me of being found out. Assures me that there's punishment. That I'm worthy of. A conscience that even betrays me. Although somehow it's a part of me. But it betrays me. Because it leads me to be enraged at other people. When they do the very things that I do. It betrays me. It leaves me with no escape from the reality of myself. This is what we live with. And so what is life? But a repeated, desperate effort to hide, to excuse, to justify, to distract myself from these things, to entertain myself enough that I don't have to face these big implications. And this God reveals, this God reveals himself to me in the face of his son. And what do I find in that face? I find righteousness and justice. I find a face that sees my sin for exactly what it is, with no confusion. And I find kindness and sympathy. I find a face that sees me truly and yet does not draw back in disgust, but a face that sees me truly and moves toward me in love, in response. With an eagerness to forgive, a persistence even. I find in this one the presence of sacrificial love. <clears throat> that would know me and would lay his own life down to redeem mine. This is what I see when I'm given to see God in the face of his son. So what is this life that he's given us now? Peace. Freedom of conscience. Joy. 
a hope that is unshakable. Jesus asks us, do you like how that feels? That's what life feels like. That's what life feels like. You think you've been alive. You've been dead. I came to bring life and to give it abundantly. This is what it feels like. And what is the physical life that he promises me? Well, gosh, I'm not entirely sure of what that's going to look like. But if it's a body that was created to fit with that, I'll imagine that I'll be okay with it. I imagine it'll more or less fit the description of 1 Corinthians 2. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you think that there's room on both sides of those? The spiritual and the physical in terms of the promises. Is there room for us to grow? I mean, to grow in living a life consistent with what is true? What he is promising us? When we are Christians and lose, as inevitably happens in this life, lose a firm grip on peace, joy, hope, We're doing what we do with our own natural ability to perceive color. We're taking so much for granted that we're not even consciously aware of the reality. Did you know that even the Apostle uh, Peter makes that same analogy? In 2 Peter 1, after he describes the beautiful fruit of the Spirit's work in us, things like virtue and godliness and self-control, He says this, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. The solution in this is to repent of the voluntary amnesia that we have given ourselves to. To stop and reflect on, I mean fight to reflect on, argue back with myself, force myself to consider, to be reminded of the sure and blessed state of my soul because of what Christ has done for me. And what that even means then concerning the things in this life that he will bring me through, which he has told me he will use for my good. That's one side of this, enjoying the reality of the present life, the spiritual life that Christ gives that we've seen. What about the other side, the promised future physical life? What do you think of when you think about death in the Lord? For believers in here, as you think about your own death that is coming, what do you think about? When that day comes for you, what will you be nearing the end of? Are you nearing the end of your physical existence so that you you ought to lament places that you haven't gone, physical experiences that you never got to experience? Are you coming to the end of your physical existence? What is the answer? Not at all. You're not even close to the end of your physical existence. The only thing you're near the end of is any experience of a physical existence that's limited by sin, that's marred by sin, or that's tainted by sin. 
It's the only thing you're near the end of when it comes to your physical existence. And thank God, good riddance. Don't you think that on this day, that when we stand bodily in glory, that it'll feel like you've never truly lived physically until that moment? I love Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5, 4. He's speaking about the day of resurrection for God's people, and he speaks of it as what is mortal being swallowed up by life. We're about to be swallowed up by life. We're merely mortal in this, in that sense of the comparison there. What's coming when he comes and brings us into resurrection life is something we have, we have never experienced. We've never lived like that. My friends, here's a simple way to think of this whole set of verses. Jesus, your Lord, is the giver of life. Any and all of it. Physical life, spiritual life. According to verse 24 of our chapter, the opposite of it isn't just death, it's judgment. And his promise to us is that in him, we will know none of it. If that's true of your existence, then I tell you that Psalm 16 is speaking of you and your circumstance and your lot in life when it says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Let's ask together today for God's grace that we would live with the peace, the gratitude, the joy that is befitting of it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've been so kind to us this morning as to remind us of these promises that your Son made to us when he walked the earth. We ask you now simply for the grace to trust you when you speak. Guard us with your warnings. Give us understanding with your teachings. And grow our faith as we hear your promises and trust them completely. We know, Father, that we succeed in this only by your merciful grace. And so we ask for it. We pray in the name of your Son, our God and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.